Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates, your host for this edition of the Women in Manufacturing Podcast. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain management consulting firm called Loose Silk Consulting, where I help clients with global supply chain projects, and also where I do expert witness work, and that's important for today's podcast. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in manufacturing and ask them to share their experiences, and we look across the broad landscape of manufacturing from the shop floor to the C-suite and the expanse of jobs and careers that support manufacturing. We're looking for insights from women leaders in manufacturing. Today, we're going to focus on supply chain and the law, which ought to be a very interesting topic for our audience. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest attorney, Sarah Rathke, and she's a partner at the international law firm of Squire Patton Boggs as my guest today. As I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of expert witness work for cases involving global manufacturing. And a couple of years ago, I was hired by Sarah to assist on one of her cases involving an aircraft manufacturing company. We worked together for about a year, and then we decided to write a book together about supply chains and the law. Our book is called Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes, and it's available on Amazon if you're interested. In working with Sarah over the course of the lawsuit and then the time that passed writing our book together, I came to really admire Sarah's really outstanding legal skills and her in-depth and unique understanding of supply chain issues, which is very, very rare in attorneys that really understand the depth of supply chain. And by the way, Sarah won the lawsuit that we worked on together. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I have some questions that I want to ask, but before we get to those, can you tell us a little bit more about Squire Patent Boggs and your focus on supply chain clients? Sure. So Squire Patent Boggs is a international law firm. I think we're up to 44 offices in 21 countries or something like that, 22 countries. And that really sort of drew me. Now, my office is in Cleveland, Ohio, which is actually where the firm began, too. In the UK, the origins of our firm were in the Midlands. So I think what you can tell that I'm getting at is our firm our firm's origin is in manufacturing. And now we do all sorts of things, but that's kind of where we started and that's sort of where I've kept my focus. So we're a large law firm. I think we have 1,400 lawyers, maybe something like 400 partners around the world. And, you know, it's it's been a really great place to grow up in the law. I've only actually had this one job as an adult and this is it. So I guess I don't have much to compare it to, but it's provided enough opportunities for every stage of growth that I've been in. Huh? Terrific. So tell us some more about your background in education, how you ended up in supply chain law of all things, and why did you choose this path? Sure. So in terms of education, I grew up in northern Minnesota, but I ended up going to college in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University, where I got some real exposure to international relations, international policy, and so that really interested me. I then went on to go to law school at University of Michigan Law School, which is a rigorous course of study, so that's my educational background. In terms of why I picked supply chain, I don't think I did at first, 
But at one point, I think right around when I was meeting you, Rosemary, I sort of realized that all the cases that I was doing had to do with manufacturing disputes between different players in supply chains. And frankly, if you were the first person that articulated to me that that's what I did, and then (laughs) my thinking around defining what I did and explaining the various aspects of what I did really coalesced when we did write our book together, Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes, and also in the context in the case in which you and I work together, which, you know, as we point out all the time when we speak together publicly, there were probably a good dozen opportunities along the way for the parties to have worked together to avoid the litigation that ultimately ended up occurring. So that was kind of my path through the law, and that's my path towards supply chain law. That's so funny because when we were working together, I was really astounded by how much depth you had and understanding of uh, the engineering processes and product development and the manufacturing floor. And even though we were filling in the blanks with some details, uh, the experts that were on the case, you had a fundamental understanding of what was going on. And that's really unusual. I've worked with a number of attorneys who are totally clueless. <laughs> and I have to <laughs> teach them from square one about supply chains and manufacturing. So I was impressed. I'm always impressed with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and, you. And meeting you at the, I think it was maybe 35, 36 when we did that case together. And it really kind of brought some things together for me. And then we wrote that book and that, you know, continued the process of bringing some things together for me. So, and also I just like, I like people who make things. Yeah, me too. That's my draw too, but I think you'd be surprised that most of us that are in manufacturing fell into it by accident. It was not intentional, but we all ended up in the supply chain one way or another. <laughs> so I think you know it would be really helpful for the audience if you share in a general way, and I know you can't disclose clients, but in a general way, what kind of lawsuits are you have you been involved with that include supply chain and sort of can can you maybe give some examples of what the issues were to help educate the audience sure so i mean let me start with the one the lawsuit that brought you and i together that was a lawsuit involving the manufacture of airplane engines and whether or not certain widgets that went in those engines were causing kind of wear and tear issues on the engine. So that's an example. Another example is, this is sort of attenuated from the supply chain, but my mind is on it because I just finished trying this case, is, you know, we represented an Ohio company who had been sued by its digital marketing provider. And although we, you know, that particular thing did not involve making things, the questions and legal issues were a lot the same. Let's see, other cases involve you know, trying to figure out with construction materials, if there's some defect in those materials, what caused or which entity in the supply chain caused that and how that happened. So it it could really be anything across industries, which is interesting because every day involves a new industry and a new problem, which definitely prevents me from getting bored. So when you said that you were working with digital marketing, was that a misrepresentation of something or Explain a little bit further how that is related to manufacturing. Sure. It it really isn't other than like, well, the company was a manufacturing company, but the question was whether the digital marketing was provided as it was supposed to be. And so the principles were a lot the same. It's not a great example, but it's just the one that's on my mind right this second. 
Yeah, and you know, we've talked before, and I think we wrote about this in the book too, how marketing materials and the way advertising is conducted may affect your exposure to certain exactly. lawsuits as well. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, I think that people assume that if you limit your warranty or if you if your contract says so, that what you're warranting is limited to what's in the contract. But as we wrote about in our book on warranties, there are instances, and it's not a majority view, but it happens enough that people need to be aware of it, where if there is some sort of sales or marketing statement about the product at issue that's outside the contract, but that the purchaser proves was a material predicate for buying whatever product is at issue, that can become a binding warranty according to the courts. And I remember the one case, at least one of the cases that we discussed in our book was one that involved a conveyor belt manufacturing line for a bakery company, you know, a a large bakery company. And the representation made during the sales pitch was that the equipment at issue could move fine powders of whatever variety. That turned out not to be true. There was a limitation clause in the contract that the defendant sought to enforce to prevent the suit, but the court said, no, it's a question of fact. If you made this representation, even verbally, or even just in your marketing materials, and the other people relied on it, then this could conceivably form the basis of a warranty to which you're, you're bound to perform. Wow. So even though you may have a contract that's legal and you think it's binding, if you've advertised something different or promised something different in your marketing materials, you may be subject to litigation? You can. And I think where this comes up a lot is in the software industry because, of course, people... I mean, Rosemary, I know you've written a lot about SAP systems and things like that, and that's where sometimes the sales staff gets a little bit out ahead of the the capabilities of the, the product at issue, and that can be an issue, especially in a complex product such as an SAP system or ancillary services uh, where the vendor really is the expert. The purchaser has no real independent expertise where it's important to think it illustrates the importance of disciplining your sales and marketing staff such that, you know, the company isn't left writing checks based on the representations that may or may not actually be able to be fulfilled in reality. Mm. Wow. That's a little scary for people in manufacturing to think they may be making promises or the promises being made by their advertising department or their marketing department. Yeah. Salespeople want to sell. That's what they're paid to do. And so you can see how this happens from time to time. Typically, majority of the time, any warranty disclaimer or limitations that you put into the contract that those are enforceable, but there are going to be some exceptions that people do need to be aware of. I remember you talking about another case that involved chocolate or cocoa sourcing and the labor related to it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, that was a case that was filed but went away pretty quickly, if I recall what you mean. But this is, for a while, and I think 2015, 2016, there was a rash of cases filed, typically in California, as consumer class actions in which consumers would look at companies' social or supplier codes of conduct on the Internet. And if the statements made in those codes of conduct were very broad and were not followed to the letter, 
then consumers, classes of consumers would bring claims saying, you know, you misled me with the advertising. For a while, that was used against typically food producers who source, I mean, every product that you see, eat, or touch, like at some level, comes from the earth somewhere or trees. So chocolate in particular is typically sourced, at least in commercial quantities, it's sourced from West Africa. And so representations were being made that, you know, our products are free of child or forced labor. And of course, if you can find one instance where you've got a supplier that's engaged in child labor, whether it be a family farm or whatever, of course, you haven't abided by the thing that you said. These cases typically were dismissed based on technical issues with pleadings, but it, that can also be a real danger. If you're selling to consumers, you have to be aware, you have to be conscious of not making overbroad statements about your what goes on in your supply chain unless you can verify that it's true. Yeah, so this was, you know, a few years ago, a lot of electronics manufacturers, so I live in Silicon Valley, and there are a lot of concerns by companies here regarding their supply chain, making sure that there were no conflict minerals or you know, any forced labor all the way back to mining of, mm -hmm. say, copper, for example, that would go into wiring, that would go into a circuit board, that would go into an electronics product, and trying to follow your supply chain all the way back to origin is really hard and expensive and time-consuming. Very but true. It, I, yeah, but I guess if, you know, if there's enough class action by consumers that you're forced to do that and to recreate the supply chain or to begin to manage it all the way up front. So, wow, that's one of those other exposure things that we don't often think about. You know, one other thing that I know you and I have discussed also is this idea and the development of IoT, the Internet of Things, mm -hmm. and how companies share information back and forth along the supply chain wants machinery and forecasting and, you know, other metrics and so forth are shared between supply chain partners. So I think what we've talked about is that there's some exposure created when you're sharing information back and forth like that. Oh, sure. Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if there was a lawsuit between a partner, let's say there was a machine tool that was uploading information about production and what was happening with the products that were coming off the line, they were uploading that information to another supply chain partner and there was some kind of dispute. How would the information be used as evidence in a case? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it depends on exactly what form the evidence takes, but in general, once civil litigation is filed or once you have noticed that civil litigation is likely to be filed, parties have an obligation to preserve evidence. So if you have, you know, for instance, an automatic data destruction policy in place that you know will eradicate evidence that will otherwise be relevant, even tangentially to a lawsuit, you have to put the brakes on that process or at least have a very good statement about why it's unworkable or impossible to do so. The other area where data, Internet of Things or otherwise, people are becoming very conscious of and very protective of data for good reason. Obviously, the pinnacle of that involves consumer data, but other data too. And so while I'm not an expert in this area, I'm aware that data statutes proliferate all the time now and states have their own specific statutes and you know companies that 
operate nationally or internationally have to comply with all of them. And so that's been a real challenge. Yeah. And I think some of my clients from a consulting perspective, you know, get all excited about IoT and how that smooths the supply chain by providing information up and down and how you can address friction when it happens. And, you know, it's so exciting to have data capabilities all of a sudden. But on the other hand, (laughs) that data becomes evidence if you have a lawsuit and have to produce that evidence. And there's, you know, something that is you know, not in your favor because of that. So I think, you know, caution is the word, I guess. And what are you sharing and how could it be used in a legal proceeding if you did share that data back and forth? And I just think it's a big risk area that companies don't always think about. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, I think you'll see more when we, with the rise of autonomous vehicles, that's obviously a proposition with terrifying implications potentially. Sure, because if something goes wrong, someone's harmed or property's harmed or whatever, all of that data is going to become evidence, right? Well, I mean, and the potential for hacking into the into the oh, system yeah. and, and wreaking harm intentionally. Mm-hmm. A little scary. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully we're putting some fear into the manufacturers out there to really think about their exposure and be able to protect themselves. And of course, that was the purpose of the book that we wrote together is how to avoid and defend those situations if they come up, but also how to predict what they're likely to be in the future. Mm -hmm. So any other examples that you want to share with us? Of litigation? Yeah. Any other stories? Yeah, right. So, I mean, another interesting case involves parts that were used in, in the manufacture of automobiles. Actually, this wasn't litigation. It was more of something that we looked into on a consulting basis. And, you know, we kind of really took apart a manufacturer's supply chain from top to bottom and looked at it and make sure that they complied with best practices. And that was a really interesting exercise in seeing it from beginning to end. You know, as you know, when we wrote our book, our book is divided into, I think, 24 chapters in which, generally speaking, you wrote the first part of each chapter, which described operationally the issues that were going on. And then I would write the second part of each chapter, which described the legal implications of those operations. So this gave me a real chance to see a lot of the operational aspects that I was aware of because, you know, I'd worked with you so much, but had not really gotten the same kind of firsthand view of myself. Uh-huh. Okay. How has your thinking on supply chain and manufacturing issues evolved over time? I mean, did you have a different view 10 years ago and, you know, is it different today? So I would say, you know, back when we wrote our book, Rosemary, I thought, and I think part of what we were both saying in that book was you really need to have smart, capable people in in charge of your supply chains, like really competent technicians who understand the international implications of what they're doing, you know, somebody really smart to run every one of your 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. daily meetings, that kind of thing, who understands the implications of the decisions that you make and the ramifications that that will have on your supply chain and who will be able to adjust well to changing circumstances. I still believe that that person is a necessary condition for success, for successful supply chains. Recently, though, in the past couple of years, I've begun to question whether that is even remotely sufficient to run a successful, efficient supply chain. And the reason that I say that is I think the last few years have shown us the emergence of problems of a different sort. You know, 
folks in China get the flu and all of a sudden factories are shutting down. There are trade wars and trade sanction situations going on that nobody could have predicted five years ago. And so I think in today's atmosphere, you do need your skilled technician. You need as many of them as you can. But, you know, it turns out that maybe those of us who went to school in the era where our parents like were banging on us to go learn a practical skill, I think it turns out that maybe we all should have been studying history and reading widely in history Uh because to understand what is going to happen with your supply chain now, it is so much more international policy driven than it ever has been. And so, you know, I think you need a good policy advisor or a fortune teller you know, whatever is in your price point. But I think that you cannot succeed, at least not optimally, in today's chaotic business environment without an understanding of geopolitical policy. And I think that has become the determinator that will dictate who really succeeds and who fails over the next, you know, half a decade or a decade. And that has not been true before, not to the same extent. Yeah, boy, I I totally agree with that. So I think, you know, when I look at supply chain, I always think of two parts. So there's the execution part, and that's the day-to-day operations, making things work, following up, you know, watching what's going on in your supply chain and so forth. And then there's the strategic part. Let's take the coronavirus as an example. <laughs> I just read yesterday that not only is are these factories all shut down, but now the virus is transmittable on surfaces, so mm-hmm. and it will last up to ten days. So, as a supply chain person, you got to think: if I'm getting freight from China or have freight from China over the past month or two months, do I need to disinfect it? <laughs> Do I need, you know, what what about that bubble wrap when I open up a crate and there's bubble wrap in there? So I'd be careful not to burst any of the bubbles because the air may have the virus in it. I mean, these are not day-to-day issues. These are long-term risk assessment and thoughtful strategy about what do I do now and what do I do in the future in terms of manufacturing? Really, I think you are spot on because that's exactly what I see too in supply chain. It's becoming far more strategic than the execution of the old days. Well, and coronavirus is a good example of sort of a short-term acute problem that, you know, I trust that this will resolve over time. But I think what we're seeing now is an unprecedented, in my view, return to some nativistic political principles governing in countries that had previously, where business had previously been conducting itself very internationally. We've certainly had nativistic periods in our history. Other countries have too, but not in a time where our business footprint was so extended. And how we deal with that is a matter of understanding geopolitical history, geopolitical policy, and the macro trends in which we find ourselves. And, you know, all of the supply chain technician experts in the world are not going to help us with that. And, you know, move manufacturing to Vietnam, that's not going to work for everybody. Vietnam is like what? As an economy, it's like a 30th side of size of China, maybe. So, you know, it's not, it's 900 million people. Yeah. 900 million people. And and China has 1.4 billion and not anywhere close to the sophistication. So yeah, I'm, dealing with that with a lot of my clients as well as they're trying to determine should they move out of China and if so where and can and they is bring it going to make it any better? Back? 
Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, that's the other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. And that's, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube or the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, we live and work and breathe in a global environment. You can't close down the United States and say we're, you know, we're not going to trade or talk to other people or whatever. We're an integrated part of that global, that global economy. Well, and I think if if you told people five years ago that a you know federal Republican administration would start tariff wars with countries in which we have major dealings, people would think you were insane. But here we yeah. find ourselves. Yeah. Right. Okay. So now I want to turn a little bit and ask you a couple of personal questions before we leave the podcast. So, how hard is it for? women lawyers versus men lawyers to get ahead in in today's environment? Is it improving? I mean, it seems to me there are an awful lot of women lawyers out there, at least that I work with, and they seem to be doing well. Yeah. So what the data tells us is that certain areas of the law are more hospitable than others. I think government lawyers, it's close to 50-50, but the data also tells us that industry average in AMLAW 100 law firms, or maybe even AMLAW 500 law firms, which means the largest 100 or the largest 500 law firms, the percentage of equity partners who are women is something around 15% and it is not improving. So, you know, 15% is the kind of number where you know a couple things. Like, number one, it can be done. Number two, if you were to do it, you would find yourself in a situation in which you would have a community of probably very closely knit female partners like I do. It wouldn't be the sort of situation where it was a queen bee ethos and everybody would have the seeking suspicion that there's only room for one of us, which produces, of course, negative outcomes. But that doesn't make it easy. And there are certain parts of life in which it's more difficult to succeed in a big law atmosphere, which is, again, the only job I've ever had. And obviously, you know, parenthood and how you negotiate that with your partner makes a huge difference. And also, you know, I actually feel that law firms, we're procedural people by nature. So I think we are ironically doing pretty well in trying to understand the process impacts of that environment on women and minorities. We're trying. We're starting to understand it and starting to act on it. It's not perfect and it's never as fast as you want, but the commitments are there or starting to be there, at least within the law firms. Manufacturing, so, you know, my industry is law, but in a way my industry is also manufacturing because that's my client base. I've found that in terms of being selected, to be trial counsel for manufacturing companies, people do seem to be fine with the fact that I am a woman. In fact, that's, you know, seen to sometimes be sort of intriguing in a way, but I do think manufacturing has a long way to go in terms of doing the thing that law is starting to do and examining why there are sometimes these disparities in who gets promotions and who does those things. And, you know, I don't know about this in manufacturing, but I know about it within the law. You know, in the law, we're, especially in big law, we're still in the place where white women are considered sort of a affinity group because there are few of them in the equity partner and partner ranks. And that's white women. So imagine how much more difficult for minorities and, of course, women of color. And so, you know, we are 
I feel that we're kind of in a place in the industry where I can feel things loosening up a little bit and people being more conscious. Now, being conscious of the problem is obviously not the same as fixing the problem, but you can't start with the fixing until you have an understanding of what's causing this. I hope that answered your question. I think I, I may have sort of yeah. wandered into a ramble there. Oh, no, no, no. It was really helpful, and especially from a perspective of manufacturing and law together. I mean, it's really it's good for us. We're learning from what you have to say. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. For the audience, you can listen to more podcasts on women in manufacturing at our website, which is www.women, spelled out W-O-M-E-N-A-N-D, women and M-F-G, Com. So that's W-O-M-E-N-A-N-D-M-F-G.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America and Sarah, can you give the audience your contact information? Oh, sure. Sarah Rasky, you know, email is sarah.rasky, R-A-T-H-K-E, at squirepb, P is in patent, B is in bogs, dot com. All my contact information is available on our website, which is www.squirepb.com. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.